Hello everybody and welcome to Volume 2, Issue 56 of the Kane and Rince Podcast. Some 20 years after defeating the Nihilanth on Zen, Dr. Gordon Freeman is brought out of stasis by the mysterious G-Man to defend humanity and the Vortigaunt against the alien forces who have enslaved the Earth. Joining me this week, Leon Cox, we have Joshua Garrity. Hello there. And Carl Moon. Evening, gentlemen. Half-Life 2. So this is the second of our trilogy of Half-Life shows. Half-Life 2 was born to the world uh, after some anticipation in 2004, November, uh, just after Steam. Um, we may talk a little bit about the uh, the birthing difficulties of Steam and Half-Life. Uh, then a year later, it was released on Xbox console, the original Xbox that is. Uh, the next release was the Orange Box in October 2007 on Xbox 360 and December on PlayStation 3 and I think that was handled, that was converted by a third party like EA or something, team at EA. Yeah, this was back in the time when Valve outright refused to work with PlayStation so they outsourced it. Uh, and then finally it came to Mac OS X in May 2010, I assume that was uh, the day that Steam launched on Mac. Yeah. Yeah, sounds about right. Uh, the game won, uh, back in the day, something like 39 Game of the Year awards, and uh, at the end of the 2000s, two Game of the Decade awards. I noticed uh, in WH Smith's recently, I saw a PC Gamer cover of the uh, latest issue of that magazine, and for the umpteenth time, Half-Life 2 was there on the cover as they were doing their uh, all-time best 100 PC games uh, list again. I don't know if it's come top of that for the like, 15th consecutive year or something. Uh, well, it can't be that long. But um, you know what I mean. And it has sold at least 12 million copies according to figures, although you wonder, I mean, how many, uh, does anyone know how many people have Steam? Because pretty much if you have Steam, you have Half-Life 2 these days. I'm, they've given it away for free at some point, I think. I'm sure, yeah. yeah. yeah every but Christmas it's a, you know, a couple of quid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine that this show will be listened to by many people who have never at least played Half-Life 2 and uh, it is a game like so many of those we cover, it's one of those that uh, some will consider it a sacred cow that it can't be knocked but then that is belied by the fact that I often hear people saying, you know, I really hate Half-Life 2 and uh, then they, those same people will say, well I know it's not a very popular opinion but there seems to be enough of them, so of course like every great game in inverted commas it is divisive but uh, we're just going to give our own opinions as well as the facts um, and yeah the game's easy enough to try out if you haven't so see what we think um, IMDB credits now Valve famously are very sort of communist about their the way they credit they just uh, list in alphabetical order everyone who works at the company for their credits um, but according to the IMDB the director is David Sparer and the writer is Mark Laidlaw and I think the information in the Bible we now have our Raising the Bar Half-Life 2 books out again for this recording as we did for the first show I think mostly that backs it up but of course being Valve we know that it's an extremely uh, collaborative effort amongst the whole studio. 
So our own histories with Half-Life 2, you heard how much Carl adored the original. Uh, you must have been pretty excited for this. Yeah, it was um, it was pretty manic leading up to the launch of the game. I remember not long before the game released, obviously it was uh, supposedly leaked. The files were leaked onto the internet and at the time I was doing a lot of gaming lands and Needless to say, of the 60, 70 people in the room, a couple of them would always have those files and we would try it and we would look through it and obviously graphically it was pretty impressive so it was decided at that point that I needed a new PC so a couple of weeks before the game came out I uh, spent in the region of thirteen to £1,400 on a new PC to be able to run it with all the bells and whistles. Um, bought the game, <laughs> took the week off work and went to go and play through the game. It's not a short game either, so... Yeah, I'm glad I took the week. Yeah, well, it perhaps doesn't take a week, but uh, yeah, it's not uh, It's not like your modern first-person shooter campaigns. Uh, and some will talk of maybe artificial padding in Half-Life 2, but we'll see how we feel about that. Uh, now, Josh, uh, people may or may know not, uh, not know that your sort of online handle, your Twitter name, etc., is Combine Hunter. Uh, and the Combine uh, came to uh, existence in this game. So um, you'd have been how old when Half-Life 2 14 came out? 14, I was. Oh, 14. Um, what I, happened? I was nowhere near as well informed about the video game industry, what games were coming out and when, as I am now. I was kind of that, you know, at that age it was literally, ooh, that cover looks nice, I'll play that. And then, <laughs> you know, get it home and realise it's terrible. Um, I discovered Half-Life 2 while around a friend's house and they were playing it on their laptop and I was immediately uh, drawn into it because of how visually impressive it was. At, at that time, Half-Life 2 looked like no other game. Um, it was really impressive and I had a go on it, and it around his house and I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, and he and he said, well, you can borrow it. So he gave me a, his disc copy of Half-Life 2 and gave me his Steam uh, details. So he basically let me borrow his Steam account to play this game. Nice. Um, and I played through it. And I think it's... I know we're not really going to go into our general opinions, but my Twitter handle and pretty much my username everywhere is Combine Hunter. So I think it's fair to say this game had a fairly impact. Uh, it impacted me in a large way. Mm. It's quite interesting because obviously Josh came across Half-Life 2 in the same way that Darren uh, came into Half-Life 1 in that he went round his mm. friend's house and he was introduced to it that way. And yeah, the ages add up as well, don't they? About the same age at that period. So Half-Life 1 for Darren was about the same age as Half-Life 2 was for Josh. Yeah. Um, and yes, so you're perhaps unlikely to have a high-end, high-spec PC at that age and so you're perhaps more likely to go and see it running around friends or something but um whereas i of course was much older when this came out i was uh 32 um as with half-life one i pretty much bought a pc to play this on i was still using the same pc up to the point that half-life 2 was coming out and when i knew it was definitely imminent imminent uh, I decided that I had to get an upgraded machine. Now, th this was a, a bit of a tribulation. Um, I ended up getting the husband of a work colleague to build it, um, thinking this was a great idea. You know, everyone said, as they do now, oh, yeah, get somebody who knows how to build it to build your PC. It's a lot cheaper than buying one you know, fully made and so on and so forth. But 
uh, he hadn't done he hadn't been building PCs for a while so he kind of got out the loop as to uh, as to what was good and uh, he'd never built PCs for gaming so he didn't really know anything about graphics cards or anything like that um, and neither did I because I've never been into the tech side so between us we cobbled together this machine which while it did work eventually uh, it was very loud very hot um, and a, a bit unreliable extremely ugly uh, got the most horrific case for it uh, and initially the power supply simply couldn't cope with what we were asking it to do and, and all this stuff so it, it became one of those awkward situations where you're uh, you keep having to take it into work, uh, giving it to uh, my colleague, the wife, and saying it's not working. Uh, but eventually we got there and it, it did just about run Half-Life 2 uh, on decent spec. I was also still on 56k modem at this point, no broadband. But at the point that I downloaded Half-Life 2, it was on a 56k modem, so it probably took several days and I was probably paying a penny a minute or whatever it was on British Telecom phone line. Um, I didn't get... Now, when this first came out, now, as with many digital releases to this day, there are still, uh, there's still an internet outcry, but the the noise and fuss and kerfuffle and panic and tearing of hair and teeth that greeted the actual release of Half-Life 2 was something quite astronomical. Josh, I guess you won't remember this, but Carl, you probably do. I remember a lot of outcries. I mean, I was... Uh quite a senior member on the overclockers forums for uh, many years and if you're going to hear whinging about pc parts or oh, pc yeah. issues you're going to hear it there yeah uh and so there were i can't remember exactly the problems but there were problems with simply getting it downloaded uh problems with it i don't know probably problems with executable serial codes uh glitching sound which a bug which lasted for ages and actually still uh i was playing it today and even though my recent playthrough on the PC was was smooth as butter I was playing it today and it was glitching every few sort of yards like a little uh, the game stuttering and I don't know if there's a memory leak or something that they've never patched I don't know but um it was people were people were up in arms because the game was not you could you know the the reviews were out and people could tell that this game was going to be something echelon defining potentially but their experience was being compromised by the service um, people were very dubious and skeptical about steam and digital downloads at this point apart from anything because there were loads of people like me who were still on 56k modems yeah i mean steam steam was a a strange one it was it was new it was pushed into sort of the marketplace early on by the counter-strike mod for half-life one when it it switched up into uh, version 1.5 i believe and from that moment there were issues and i remember there were a lot of worries over the half-life 2 launch and Needless to say, the sort of the servers collapsed under the pressure. As you mentioned, there were authentication issues, which is something that I encountered uh, mm. getting into the game. It, it was strange. It was sort of it was such a blockbuster release. Um, it it was odd in so many ways. It was one of the first games that I remember signing on with the ATI brand rather than the Nvidia brand, and people were switching graphics cards and. The sound issue was a problem, which again, yeah, echoey and ringing sounds, another issue I encountered, and the stuttering was a serious problem. Steam at its launch was an absolute disaster. Yeah, uh, now we talk about these things only really out of interest and, you know, for curiosity and anecdotal <laughs> um, context, but. Um, Really, we on Kane and Rinse, we prefer to talk about the game, you know, the experience as it should be and as it is now, which for the vast majority of people will be absolutely fine. I think there are probably some 
uh, I, I suspect the the uh, PS3 version isn't probably quite as good as the Xbox 360 version, and the, and that isn't quite as good, you know, graphically as as a PC version running well. Then there's the Xbox One version, which uh, I gather was you know passable. Um, don't, probably don't buy the Xbox version. Whatever you do, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's oh okay. It's it really is the inferior product it, it doesn't look anywhere near as good and so this is more like the ps2 version of the original half-life yeah, in that no, it's, it's now to be considered yeah yeah Th- there's absolutely no reason to play that version now um you can get the orange box on console for under a tenner and you can get half-life 2 on steam for whatever it costs so uh no need to worry about that um so as discussed, Half-Life 2 begins sort of where Half-Life 1 ends, but sort of not. It, 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 it begins where it ends for the player, for, for the player as Gordon Freeman, um, but around 20 years have passed in this alternate vision of the Earth's future. Uh, you are removed from stasis via, uh, by the, the G-Man, plonked on a train which is on its way into the austere, bleak, Eastern European dystopia that is City 17. Such a radical change to make with a sequel. I think of this generation and how many sequels are kind of just safe iterations on what worked with the first one. I mean, some of the best games this generation are just safe sequels like Uncharted 2 and stuff like that. For them to say, you know what, we're going to dramatically change the kind of atmosphere and setting that mm. we're going to have in this game. It's kind of unheard of these days. I, I've ne- I can't think of a sequel recently that's had has been this ambitious. It's extremely bold. Uh, it's it's a remarkable opening. So instead of com- the, the famous lengthy train ride into in, uh, Black Mesa, which uh, starts off like, you know, another day at work for a, an MIT trained scientist. This starts with you uh, surrounded by miserable looking people in uh, plain blue overalls um, in this place, which looks like it's from the past of the Earth in, you know, the real Earth, because it's, uh, you know, it's all based on um, places in Eastern Europe. When they, when Valve went to photograph them and and sketch them in the late 90s early 2000s i guess where um and these are possibly places which still haven't been modernized in in the sense that you know some areas in in western europe may have been uh and yeah it's just it's nothing like black mesa either indoors or outdoors it's nothing like zen either certainly uh so you've got uh the big brother like figure of dr breen uh talking down to you from the video screens high up above, uh, voiced by Robert Culp, sadly no longer with us. I believe most of the uh, the voice cast are still around. And but yes, yeah, so instead of being on a literal rail in this, the opening section forces you to learn the new controls by pushing you through a gate and uh, a civil protection guard. These are the humans who are working for the combine. Now the plot isn't really sort of explained too much at this point, other than you're told that you're needed, and and Doctor Breen is giving some expo- exposition via the screen. But generally, there's a sense of um, confusion, and I, I, you know, I found it 
immediately intoxicating but I think probably for some people those people who don't enjoy Half-Life 2 starting something in such a sort of with such a negative tone may have been off-putting I think for any fan of the original Half-Life um, as you alluded to it's, it almost fakes you into thinking it's a similar setup but it, it couldn't actually be any more different you obviously you're like you say you're aware that you're going to work in the first one the second one it's almost a, a whole what am I doing here and um I'm going to mention it for two two weeks in a row. Obviously, I mentioned it on the Syndicate podcast. The environment in this game is very sort of 1984 stylized in that there's clearly an, an overriding force and that the people are just, you know, working hard to get by. And it's Valve at their very best explaining a story subtly through the world as you explore it um, from, you know, the moment that you step off the train to the moment that you, you go past the lines and a, a, a guard is telling you to put a, a can in the bane and that, you know, that gives you the first option of, you know, do you disrespect him or do you put it in and continue onwards? And just to comment on people's feelings about the opening, I actually feel their approach here and throughout the entire game is one of Half-Life 2's greatest strengths is that they let the player use their imagination to fill in the gaps for themselves and slowly piece together the world they're being presented as Mm. they play it. So many games just do, and even games I love are guilty of it. I just playing Okami HD recently and that game's great but there's this huge exposition dump right at the beginning of the game explaining everything that's going on in the history Mm. of the world and you're just oh come on there's a much more elegant way of doing this and that is what Half-Life 2 does well. I think that's the ultimate confidence in their own sort of game design that you know to to have that and say we're going to build this we're not going to tell anybody anything they're just going to explore it, and it's all going to feel natural, um, and and it's quite wonderful how they did it. It's they also sort of create this world where it almost feels open, but you're channeled quite linearly down certain paths. And I think Half Life Two is one of the games that maybe does it the best, if not the best of them all. Where that level of confidence is something that you very seldom see in any game, even other Valve games maybe aren't as confidently bold as they are with this. But but also, the unknown is terrifying. The fact that I don't know anything, anything about these soldiers with gas masks or the striders that are patrolling around the city or why mm. these people are being imprisoned in their own homes, that's terrifying. Probably not for the last time we'll mention it, that the, this story is not told just by by actions and characters and events but by the the palette that the artists have chosen and the sound that that Kelly Bailey uh is responsible for for throughout the game the which terrifying is, sound the sound is um yeah I'll say I'll say this early because I think it's important for every chapter that we talk about but I think there are kind of two sound designers who I know by name in the world and that's Ben Burt who did all the Star Wars sounds and Kelly Bailey, who did all the sounds for Half-Life 2. And I think, you know, I, I consider the sound design in Half-Life 2 up there with with all those iconic sounds in, in Star Wars, in the Star Wars films, the lightsabers yeah. and Darth Vader breathing and all that stuff. I think the sounds of the, the Combine speaking and the sirens going off and the trains and the wind on the bridge section and the Strider voices and Dog, it's incredible. It it's, just... It's... It, 
unbelievable. I, I would go so far as to say it's the best sound design of any game I've ever played. Like, yeah, I would agree. Um, I mean, there are certainly games that are up there with it. I would say Dead Space is possibly up there with it and stuff like that. It can hear those sounds when I dreamed, you know what I mean? They Abs- absolutely. Your yeah. psyche in a way that no other game does and i personally feel that um and i don't know if anyone else agrees with me here that sound design good sound design makes a game age really well uh, mm. more than um you know technical visuals um the fact that the sound design is so good in half-life 2 i don't care like i think this game still looks good but it's certainly not up to t- today's standards but the sound mm. design is better than most games these days i think you know if you sort of ignore any sort of technical additions such as you know the advancement to dolby digital or thx etc then sound design is ageless especially great sound design as we as we've mentioned in this that's why star wars so many years on getting towards what 40 years on is still incredibly yeah. those sounds you, they just live with you you know you can recall the exact notes the exact tones of these these sounds and it's something that you know that half-life 2 has the fact is something as simple as reloading my shotgun is incredibly satisfying just because the sound design feels so like meaty and um, yeah, the gun, the gun, as well as all the environmental yeah, noises yeah. and character noises, the gun sounds, which are obviously, you know, this is, lest we forget, a first-person shooter, uh, with, albeit with puzzle elements. Um, the guns, the guns all sound great and and feel feel good to fire. The the, they've got real top and bottom end to the sounds. Um, I heard you talking about the Syndicate guns being very bass heavy last week. Well, I think Half Life gets the balance right because the guns have all the right notes you know they have they have bass and treble and uh, and and they just make interesting noises i, th- I think you've nailed it it's, it's that they're interesting the the unpredictable is almost i remember the first time i played it um and i wanted to fire every gun not just to see what it did but to see what it's well to hear what it sounded like and, mm, mm. and it it's well good sound design isn't something that immediately stands out to you if you know what i mean bad sound design stands out because you think oh god that's awful but good sound design should blend together so seamlessly that Mm. it just creates you know a really great and dense atmosphere and it's only when you really pay attention like i was when playing this game for cane and rinse again um where you're picking out all the different sounds trying to examine them and you think god Someone put a lot of effort into every inch of this game. Yeah, Kelly Bailey should be knighted or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, the start of the game sees you uh, in this uh, being bundled in as one of any. You're being, I don't know, it's like you're, uh, yeah, you're being transferred to City Seventeen, which is one of many seven uh, cities. Um, never quite explained how many there are or why you're in Eastern Europe or whatever, but there you are. Um, but you're quickly, there's a reason why uh, the G-Man has put you in this place because this is where the, the resistance are hanging out. And in another sort of fascinating move that is sort of an interesting comment on video games becoming more advanced is whereas in Half-Life 1, which was just six six years previously, 
Black Mesa was full of these identikit clones of security guards and doctors. They took three of these archetypes, one security guard and two doctors, and made them into characters. So they took the security guard, the security guard that was Barney, who was mentioned by name uh, in the first game, but had the same model as all the others. Um, he was the star of Blue Shift as well. I think. Well, that's. I think that's largely largely irrelevant. And uh, the the white doctor from Black Mesa became Doctor Isaac Kleiner, and the black doctor became Doctor Eli Vance. We should really talk about the voice acting at this point. I think because yes, uh, absolutely, it all feels very natural. Um, mm. The dialogue. Um, this is mainly because the writing's so good. But the mm. voice acting is exceptional. I, again, uh, yeah, sorry to preempt a summary, but I think it's still the best. I don't think anyone's done voices, characters, or a script that's better. Maybe you know, you could maybe look at maybe Red Dead Redemption yeah. as being in the same league. Uh, but I think by and large, these characters are characters I love all of them. Yeah, uh, even the ones who aren't necessarily you're supposed to love, like Judith. Judas Mossman um, and uh, and Doctor Breen. These are these are characters that are so well written and played that you feel affection towards them, even if they're bad to you. You know. Yeah, yeah, and and it's just especially when this game came out. It was two thousand four, and some of the games you know that came after this were like Resident Evil Four and Devil May Cry Three, and you listen mm. to the dialogue in those games, and it, you know it's nice cheesy fun. Yeah. But if that and was... it's partly because those are Japanese games yeah, yeah. that have been translated and, and dubbed, as it were. But yes, I'll but take your point. If you took the script of Half Life Two and the performances of Half Life Two and you compared that to a movie, it would, I think, it would hold up incredibly well. In fact, I would say it. This script and this, you know, caliber of acting is of a very good movie. Whereas the average mm. for most games is a, you know, a a mediocre movie straight to dvd yeah, yeah. Uh, oftentimes yeah yeah uh i'm not entirely sure i would agree that that's still the case now i think at the time maybe it put the marker down that games were going to head down a far more cinematic route and uh, a, a world we're going to believe in but I, I don't i'm not as carried away with the actual i mean the voice work is good um very good, certainly for 2004, but I, I, for me, I'm, I'm certainly not as, <laughs> uh, as up on it as you. I don't think there's enough uh, conversations back and forth between uh, secondary and uh, tertiary characters, and I, I don't think the interactions are there on the on the screen to... You know, what, the, to, the, what about the bit with with Barney and Alex and and Doctor Kleiner? Talking with, about the that's, cat being that's amazing. That's, that's an still amazing hilarious. Piece of dialogue. Yeah. But the very the, the the few and far between it. Well, that's because you spend and we'll talk about the silent protagonist element because it, it it's relevant. Um, that's because you spend of the twelve or so hours, maybe more that this game will take to complete. You spend probably eleven of those on your own as a silent protagonist and the, yeah. the only things you hear are, are combined voices when you're in areas with characters when you're in dr dr kleiner's lab or black mesa east or even with uh, grigory in in ravenholm there's a lot of dialogue there um yeah. obviously grigory has to do everything as a monologue because uh, gordon freeman is mute but even that he's incredibly charismatic and entertaining and even the characters that aren't human the vortigons have like the voice of the Vortigon is so. He's brilliant, Lu Lewis Lewis Gossett Jr. Uh, yeah. Again, and a veteran American actor from New York. 
uh, it's been in hundreds and hundreds of things um, and yeah just amazing again and, and that's another thing that I think Half-Life 2 does better than most games which is that it has this incredibly razor sharp balance between humour and sadness yeah, yeah. where you know you have these vortigaunts and they're 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 oppressed they're enslaved they're 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 away from home they they you know they they don't want to be there they're in this horrible world that they've, they've been imprisoned and and yet they still have this enormous lovable charm to them yeah it's remarkable um, I, I get what you're saying, knock on, about there being, you know, very few instances of that. But the thing is, you know, quality over quantity. A little goes a long way. Yeah, I would yeah. Say. yeah, yeah. It's also the the little touches, like uh, just mentioned in passing, Alex Vance, who I still think is one of the greatest female characters in gaming. Which is shameful that this is eight years later and it's still hard to find yeah. uh, good female characters. I think Judith uh, is kind of a good character, but obviously she's. Uh, she is uh, a betrayer um it's also the character it's the animation and again you know this this looked incredible in 2004 but it still stands up it's stuff like the the moment when alex kisses her father on the cheek after teleporting when uh alex is uh with talking to her imprisoned father in the uh, citadel and she puts her hands up against the glass so many games wouldn't get you know get it bother to get it right so that yeah. it looks like her hands are actually touching that glass they'd be you know like three pixels back or four pixels forward there'd be clipping issues or something again i, I don't know whether it's testament to the engine or the choreography or, or what but all that stuff is absolutely pristine i think it's absolutely valve's talent because um i've been playing black mesa source recently and in so many ways on a technical level that game looks better than half-life 2 but the thing that stands out is the animation is clearly inferior, like the facial animation and just the way characters walk around and move. Whereas in this game, they feel very organic. They move around like how you know how people would. I think the natural animations in the game um, are absolutely on point. Like the, the moment that you meet Barney for the first time and the way he has almost the the rigid walk until you're in the room on his own and he, you know, he takes his mask off and he's all of a sudden the, the animation is really believable that this is an old friend that you know he's been introduced to what i did have a few issues with was some of the animations in combat with combine soldiers i always found was a little bit uh it was a bit detracted from what was so good about it in any sort of non-combat situation it stood out that little bit more i don't think they necessarily maybe on a, a technical level were able to just get that right and it, that that sort of stood out for me and that was always one of the negative points i had about half-life 2 yeah I, th I i would i would agree with that i think as much as i i like fighting the uh the, the um civil protection um the i have the similar problem with the combat and and the animation as as in Half Life One. I mean, it's come on some, but the AI is still again. I know for the time Half Life AI was considered remarkable, but now the the behaviour of the soldiers is it, they're stupid. Yeah, you know, it's the, they're, they're, the back yeah. forward, back forward, back forward. Yeah, I'm yeah. just behind this crate now and out three again. <laughs> yeah, three and three steps sideways, and and yeah, and and there's, but there's a lot of great set pieces which kind of um, make allowances for that. So you know you will get sprung by three 
the troops on a bridge and they'll quite deliberately stand above on this bridge that's covered in explosive barrels but it's fine you know havoc physics was was in this game so that they have that problem that all pretty much all modern video games have which is that when people die they instantly become floppy ragdolls which isn't what happens in real life it's a lot more complicated than that but but it works it's entertaining uh, especially when you get the overpowered gravity gun in the final chapter. So uh, Gordon uh, is needed at Black Mesa East, which is so named because it's the their sort of um, surrogate lab, I suppose, in this uh, in this new world that they've kind of built up um, out of sight of the the combine to try and combat the the alien menace. Uh, that was another thing that we should mention is the fact that there is a certain amount of exposition on the wall of Dr. Kleiner's lab. If you go looking for it, it explains stuff which has now been expanded through uh websites wikis and whatever but the seven hour war which was the 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 idea i believe is that the combine who are another sort of interdimensional alien force uh became aware that it was possible to get to earth via the events of half-life one so the the invasion was triggered by that day at the office that gordon freeman had back then uh, and these alien forces are so far advanced that uh, it only took them seven hours to defeat all the uh, the human armies of the world. Well I, I'd really like to talk about the Combine as a force because I think they're a really interesting concept because um, it, from the looks of things looking at all the creatures um, it's like they assimilate different species mm. into their military so w my favorite uh, combine um, unit is the airship yeah. which looks like a flying whale and it, it, i kind of get the sense at one point that this was this majestic... you're talking the gun the gunship or the dropship because the, the dropship look it looks kind of like a crustacean like a crab the dropship looks like a crustacean but the airship yeah. kind of looks like a an ancient whale except it has a yeah. helicopter bit at the back instead yeah. of a tail fin yes and we learn from glimpses inside the citadel uh both at the start um towards the end of the game and an extended sequence at the end of the game that uh that's certainly what what they're doing they've they've got this basically it's a biomechanoid production plant isn't it and yeah. uh they're turning humans into these stalker creatures who who we don't really see until episode one which we'll be covering in a month's time um but they've got racks and racks of these gunships and dropships hanging up and these striders but yes they look like they've been uh taken from various other planets or dimensions and yeah uh augmented to yeah. fight for the Combine. The Combine advisors we see occasionally on uh, Dr. Breen's screen um, and uh, and again more so in, in episode two. Uh, representatives of the Combine look a little bit like the, uh, the I've forgotten the name of the species, but the, mole, the Molish people from Mass Effect, but they're a lot more sinister than that. Volus. Volus, that's it, yes. But yes, no, we should talk, sorry, before we continue more on onto the plot about the silent protagonist issue. Is it an issue? Does it bother you? Is it something that should be left behind in games with talking characters? Is it, is it a, a relic of video games gone by? And what's your personal reaction to it? Um, well, for me, it doesn't bother me because um, so much of Half-Life 2 is about creating atmosphere and... Um, as with Dead Space, as with Fallout 3, um, 
sometimes the key to uh, making that atmosphere truly get to the player is making the player truly inhabit the character. So I never saw Gordon Freeman as a character in his own right. I just felt like I was projecting myself into the world and interacting with all these different characters. Um, so it didn't bother me because I, I felt like, you know, I was just, I, as a person, was just standing there listening to all these fascinating characters talk to each other. I think I'm in a position where, much like I alluded to in the Fallout 3 show, I don't have a problem with silent protagonists. But there are two ways that you can do silent protagonists. There are ways where you've got games like Half-Life, where when you have the conversational pieces around you, they are interesting, they allow you to focus on those uh, and get the information and read the environment. Or you've got games like Syndicate, which we talked around last week, which you play a silent protagonist, but you have no sort of affinity with that player because they're not handled in the right way. You don't need a voice applied to a character to sort of relate to something. Not every game can go and do what Red Dead Redemption did and have a fantastic, you know, lead role with great voice work and interesting play. And of course, you know, without saying anything here, there there are issues with voiced characters in Red Dead. Um, Half-Life 2... I never once found it as an issue. I can understand why some people would. But I've played Mm. too many games in the past where I have not liked my character or he has Mm. a stupid voice or he says stupid things. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say anything like that. Why is he saying that? I agree with both of you completely. Um, You know, we should definitely acknowledge that some people do find it really jarring and it damages the immersion for them but for me it's completely the reverse as with you two uh, I would much rather have a mute or silent protagonist I don't even in my head he's not a silent protagonist he's he as, as you said Josh he's a projection of myself um, and I think that's he's de- de- deliberately designed to be that way to me having a silent protagonist in quotes is no more of a bit of video game smoke and mirrors than having as this game has is a completely linear uh series of events which you have absolutely no agency over other than staying alive and progressing then it's no different to me to watching a i don't know like a a a film where the where you spend every scene with the main character and it's set over a two-hour period uh sorry or set over a two-day period but he never goes to the toilet you know it's like that you know oh they never go to they never go to the loo on the star trek enterprise or whatever it's like well no okay so Gordon Freeman never actually, you never actually hear his voice. It doesn't mean he doesn't speak, you know. Use your imagination. (laughs) Uh, I think by and large, um, with exceptions, my favourite games nearly all feature silent protagonists, so it's obviously something I'm I'm more than comfortable with. Um, I would hate it if uh, you spoke in Bioshock, for instance, or indeed Pac-Man or Gallagher. (laughs) So Gordon uh, is trying to make his way to Black Mesa East uh, via teleport, but uh, this doesn't work. He teleports his way outside, which uh, leaves you to get there on foot, which means fighting your way through civil protection and uh, various other uh, aliens, some of which you've seen before, barnacles and head grabs, some of of which you haven't. Um, I still think, again, just the, the design of the world, like... 
looking in the raising the bar book you can see some of the actual locations that they've uh they've taken the sketches from the ideas for the lighting and the architecture um again even though these places as are designed for you to puzzle your way through them they look uh they look convincing it feels like a, a logical contiguous world even though there are there are plenty of locked doors you can't go in and plenty of conveniently placed items uh again the the, the smoke and mirrors are so artfully deployed that you don't feel like you're being funneled or channeled and you don't feel like well this is a crazy abstract place that is just designed for a video game well i didn't anyway I felt it was a really good decision to have this first part of the game. Um, you're effectively running away from mm. the enemy, and I thought that was really effective of building the Combine up as a force to be reckoned with. A menacing force, yeah. yeah. And actually, you can, again, on repeated plays, I have now played this game through a lot of times, you can kind of break that by, if you realise that if you play it on easy or normal, it's not a very difficult game. Um, and if you stop, and you stop running, and you, you, you can break the effect... But then that's true of a lot of games, and, and, and it's only the fact that I've played this so many times and I've got to know it so well that I can actually do that. Yeah, you, you start off, as in the original game, with nothing. Um, you're quickly given a crowbar, then soon after that you have to take somebody down with a crowbar, which is actually quite brutal for a, you know, you again, you're although you're this mass-murdering super soldier... Your part is still portrayed at the beginning, at least, as this. Uh, so I don't know about. I don't know if gentle's the word, but not malevolent anyway. Yeah. Uh, benign scientist character, and and yet you know to get your pistol, you stove a combined guard. Uh, well, no, a civil protection guard who are just humans like you and I. We understand. Um, you stove his head in with a with a crowbar and take his pistol. Um, it, uh, for me, it just. This whole early section of the game, what was great about it was that I always felt like I was desperate. I always felt like I was on the verge of failure. And obviously this is all smoke and mirrors, as you say. It's very easy, but it's just so well designed that, mm. um, like, for, uh, for example, I, I think this happens quite early on, uh, when they start shelling you with the head grab, head mm. grabs, they use these things as bioweapons, and that creates that sense that like there's nowhere you can run that they can't eventually catch up to you and get you, and they are willing to do anything to catch up to you and get you. Even resort uh, resort to using these incredibly disgusting and horrible creatures to kill everyone else around you just to catch you. Um, the the combine are. One of the most terrifying enemy forces in any game. Maybe in some, maybe in like the uh, showdown in System Shock Two, something yeah. like that. But uh, 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 and maybe the collective of the uh, necromorphs in Dead Space. But yeah, yeah. but again, they've got that sort of mindless element to them. Uh, whereas the Combine, there's a sense that they're being they're being organised. You know, they're they're being run. They they're they're actively. Uh, enlisting head crabs these are creatures who came through a interdimensional rift in the first game and became a nuisance whereas now they're being they've been swept up collected by someone put in a tank and then they're inserted in these uh 
devices which can be blasted into enemy territory and then the crabs are released to uh, enslave and zombify the surrounding people so they can be um, both taken out of action and used to to the combine's ends so yeah i think it's that sense of organized malevolence that they have over a lot of of enemies and again i think so much to do so much of it is to do with the sound design yeah. of the, the the you know the voices through the the combine masks it's, again talking about that moment where barney first takes his mask off you think he's another brutal um you know obviously they're inspired by uh, the ss yeah yeah um you see through the the slot in the door and the guard comes up and slides it such so, so you can't see what appalling scenes are going to take place and uh and then he takes his mask off and, and his voice immediately changes from that, you know, hyper-synthesized, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the effect is, but then he just, now about that beer aisle, yeah, and he just, you know, instantly becomes human, sense of relief washes over you and so on. Uh, now, I mean, large amount of the game, and this is something that uh, people who who aren't so in love with the game uh, are, it's kind of like, it feels like a, a road movie at points there's these very long sections first in an airboat uh, in the chapter water hazard where you have to go through several sort of gates uh, and uh, bypass a sort of boss which is a, a, a hunter chopper now i again I, I just i can see why people find these sections long and, and why some people f think that there may be padding but for me i just i love the sense of this genuine struggle this um actual effort for to get from place to place and a yeah. sense of scale of of what's going on what i th what other people call padding i call building a world and building atmosphere those moments where you're just exploring a building or trying to get past a gate i feel like that's making the world feel more real to me um there's so many shooters we you guys were talking about syndicate last week and one of my main problems of that game is that you are just shooting people all the time. And it's just, okay, new area, shoot all the people here. Go to the next area, shoot all the people here. Whereas Half-Life 2, it feels like you are actually engaging with a real world and you're not just killing everyone every second of the game. There are sections where you are just simply trying to overcome an obstacle in your way. It's one of those things where you've got, you know, you, you see it and it gives, it lends an identity to each individual section. As you said, it's building that world. And Half-Life 2 is one of those games where you can see a screenshot or a small bit of video, even years in the past, and you can recall that exact section of the game because it doesn't repeat itself. You know, you, you sit on Syndicate, mm. you, you storm through it, and not one section of that game really has an overriding identity. In fact, the only bits that do, uh, like some back alleys or like when you walk down a small street, but in Half-Life 2, in particular the water hazard section, which is visually spectacular, or it was at the time, is so vast that I was always really fond of this section for that reason. After this section, uh, eventually... Um, and again, I, I, I really, there's, there's also, it's stuff like, even though I don't think the game has um, sort of real time lighting of any kind, but what it does have is the palette changes subtly throughout the game. So you get a sense of the passing of time via skyboxes and the way areas are lit overall, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I understand what you were getting. You know, you, you, it uses blue lights in City 17. It uses orange lights when you're out in the desert. So you, you get the idea that, you know, 
the harsh realities have moved into sort of progression of time and a part of the game you'll you'll be playing under a morning sky yes. and then later it'll be an afternoon sky with the yeah with the with the low the low sun and i mean in fact the a low weak sun is a feature of the the visuals throughout the whole game which is one of the key things that lends it this very sort of austere eastern european um, retro atmosphere. I don't know why it plays into that, but it does. So as Gordon, you end up at Black Mesa East eventually, and this is where you're given the famous gravity gun, which is the, the, the most different uh, weapon. Um, you're given some time to learn how to use it via a, a new character, which is Dog Alex's uh, robot built for her by Eli, her father. Um, Dog, now so easy to do a crappy, cute comedy sidekick. Uh, Dog is amazing. <laughs> dog, dog is adorable and is a complete fucking hero as well. Um, the scene where Dog returns later and kicks Combine ass is still a punch the air moment for me. Yeah, it's that like as you said, there's that thin line between humour and seriousness in this game. Yeah, and I really like that Dog is both a hilarious character kind of one of the most badass and powerful characters in the game as well. There's this really interesting contrast of somebody who will make you giggle but is extremely capable as well. It's that thing it's so easy to have a, a, a schmaltzy, mawkish, you know too much uh, bathos um, sort of icky sort of relationship between Alex and Dog but it just it's not like that even though Dog will do the little, you know the the, the sort of how they get so much expression into that face with just it's basically he's got an eyeball and four flaps around its head but the animation on display is you know rivals that of of Wall-E who who at least has two eyes to to, to express himself with um goes to show you how the the fine sort of margins that you work on in character tone uh, and sound tone that can change something from you know happy to sad you know heroic to villainous and uh, you nailed it with that one when you mentioned dog because he really is so similar but he could not be more different so uh the it turns out uh, pretty much that uh, you have been um followed or you traced to black mesa east uh, and the facility comes under attack inconveniently you've already been warned about the place that you end up having to go ravenholm and this is where Half-Life 2 turns survival horror. That, that's one of the things that um, really stuck out to me uh, playing this game again, is that how many different genres it uh, covers. Mm. Um, it goes from a chase movie to a survival horror movie to, you know, towards the end. It's Driving more, game. Yeah, yeah. More like a... And it's more like a traditional first-person shooter as we've come to know it now towards the end. Yeah. Um, but... That, you know, constantly shifting in tone is one of the things that I think a lot of first-person shooters could stand to learn more lessons from. Um, that, that, this is something I'll get back to towards the end of, uh, end of this podcast, but I think there are still lessons to be learned from this game that have been ignored, and one of them is not being afraid to dramatically change the style and tone you're going for. So Ravenholm, of course, it's night when you get there, um, and this is a place that has been completely overtaken by zombies, and it's also the area that we meet this uh, this new enemy, whose name I can't remember, but he's a sort of 
hunchback zombie who carries a load of these uh, black... Poison head crabs. Poison head crabs. I hate those things so much. Yeah, which mechanically is a, it's a great device because they, if they touch you, they take you down to one health, um, meaning that any hit in the next few seconds is fatal, but your health quite quickly rises back up again. So that creates a new dynamic. Um, they make different noises. They sound even more like the head, uh, the face huggers from Aliens. Uh, so. Yes, okay. Kelly Bailey as 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 lauded as lauded as he deserved to be. He did. He certainly nicked a bit of uh, aliens there, but that's fine. If you're going to nick nick from something good, um, my only issue with Ravenholm, and I, I think it's it. I really like the way that it it feels noticeably different from the rest of the game. It feels like a, although it is part of the journey, it feels like more like a diversion. And and you know the plot supports that. You weren't supposed to end up going there. That's it's just pure shitty luck um that means you go there the only aspect that i really didn't like is it it's the only bit of half-life possibly apart from some of the end bits i'm not sure that features uh, regenerating enemies i assume they did it for reasons of wanting to sell you the fact that the the place is completely hopeless uh hopelessly overrun with creatures of the night and also um to stop you dawdling and and take the fear out of the situation, but and the zombies are the best enemies to test out the gravity gun on, um, because you're not having to worry about uh, people picking you off from a distance. You have that time to think, oh, what's in the inv- oh a buzzsaw? I'll I'll use that. I think it was really clever having uh, uh, an area of the game that's just zombies. What uh, you know, right after getting the gravity gun, because it's a great way of getting the player used to thinking about what's in the environment and what they can use against the enemy. I think I'm the only person who doesn't actually like Ravenholm at all. Yeah, what's that? It didn't feel like it belonged in the game. Um, by modern game standards, it would be DLC. Um, you mentioned it was optional to use the gravity gun, but it almost felt like it was forcing it down your throat it was you know it would throw all these conveniently placed blades and little else really in front of you and it was hard to decapitate enemies and i felt that it started to the game at that point began to unbalance itself um towards the gravity gun in particular um i have issues with any game where it suddenly changes up its own formula to say, look, this is the weapon, you're not really going to use anything else. And this was quite clearly the beginning stage of that. Um, and obviously I'll, I'll go uh, into this at more depth later on. But with Ravenholm, I felt like it was the anti-Half-Life experience. Um, I would agree with you, Knock-On. There are certain sections of Ravenholm that playing it again, I didn't really like that much there's a section where there are these car traps and part of the what you're meant to do is try and get on top of these cars as they slam down and then stay on them as they go up and then you have to platform between them um and and that kind of felt like something that was um uh, a you know something that was hanging over from heart the original half-life where they felt the need to insert these platforming sections which no first-person shooter should ever do platforming sections, ever. Um, Finally, escaping Ravenholm, you end up uh, on 
Highway 17, which is uh, the car section. Now, um, I know that one of the things that Tony was going to talk about if uh, if he'd made it on, instead of having children, was to talk about the handling of, of both the boat and the car being substandard. Uh, and I, I'm incredibly used to it because I've played them through multiple times. But um, he possibly does have a point. Uh, that said, they both sound great. So, <laughs> again, the sound, <laughs> the sound makes up for it to some degree. I- I think both the boat, having played the 360 version and the uh, PC version, I think the boat and the car uh, both control terribly on a 360 controller. Yeah. Because they've mapped all the movement onto one analog stick. Yes. And it just doesn't feel right at all. Whereas yeah. um, on the mouse and keyboard, I, I'm not going to say it's like the best controls ever, but I do feel like I have more control over these vehicles with the uh, WSAD mm-hmm. control scheme. Yeah. Uh, a couple of memorable bits for me from, from Highway 17 include uh, the bit where you take a massive diversion across the underside that the struts the suspension of a bridge. Uh, and also the section where this is quite near the start, where you uh, man a giant magnetic crane and use uh, enormous metal containers to smush some civil protection below. Uh, again, great, just fantastic uses of physics. And there's a completely changes the feel and the scale of the game when when you're you know all these meters and meters above and and using giant metal containers to knock down a path for yourself for your car to drive over and yeah and again just back to this the the, this sort of cool uh chase movie style stuff where you actually you know drive up a ramp and smash out of a window and things like this uh and this chapter also introduces the um amusing but uh slightly sinister enemies that are the sort of homing mine ball things. I don't yeah. know what, what they're called. Uh, but um, there's something about those which they, they just kind of appear from over the... They, there's there's one house that you can go in yeah. along the way. And again, I think a lot of these places are fairly optional. You could probably piss through this section a lot quicker. But yeah. if you're like me, you have to go in everywhere. Worth saying, from a, a gaming point, a gameplay point of view, the only achievement that I haven't got on this game on, on the 360, I think, and, and one I'm never going to get on, on Steam, is finding every secret Lambda supply cache in the game. There are... I think nearly 60. There's a good, and I think there's a good few, and some of them are incredibly well hidden. Uh, one of my favourite parts of this chapter, and you mentioned it uh, briefly, was the completely optional buildings that you can go into. Yeah. And, and the reason why is because each building almost has its small little narrative going on. Mm. Sometimes you'll enter a building and there's all these combine soldiers set up and they have like this telescope and they're clearly like uh, checking out all these um Yeah, rebels, which you can look uh, in. Yeah. Yeah, camped over the other side and you can spot the G man if you're mm-hmm. uh, looking carefully enough. And then you'll find another building that's clearly just been infested by all these head crabs recently because you'll see like that one of the um mortars sticking out of the ground and you see all this blood and then boom you see a zombie i just like you know visual story like subtle visual storytelling like that is really classy sure enough highway 17 leads on to sand traps when you can drive the car no further uh you have to uh navigate a section where there are expanses of sand um, and you have to make your way around by again uh, uh, some physics and um, you know logical thinking. 
I think this is where it started to wear on me a bit with the, you know, as I mentioned, the gravity gun, and it, it, we know that this was the the, you know, a major AAA release that had a high level physics engine, at least high level at the time, and I think that perhaps they could have been a bit smarter. I've said it many times before, I'm a big fan of subtlety in games. And as soon as something starts to feel overplayed in any way, it really does become jarring to me. And I enjoyed the laying down of like the, the metal pieces to cross the desert. I thought that was clever. Using it again and again and again, it became a bit tiresome. And that's... To, to be fair, Kyle, you can actually run through that section without doing any of that stuff uh it's just it's literally just to avoid having to wade through thousands of ant lines you can just run straight past i think stuff. running past it to my own personal play taste is something that i will never do in any game yeah um you know i'm, I'm someone who takes way longer to complete games than I, it should purely because i'll sit in an area and look at buildings i mean i th- i think for people at home listening to this, I think it's important to note that I I did not play Half Life One before playing Half Life Two, mm. so I think that's a, a difference between me and you, Carl. Is that experiencing Half Life Two was my first experience with Half Life, so all these things that you feel were kind of going against Half Life, these things are Half Life for me, mm. and. Um, all that stuff with the physics and stuff like that, I associate that as part of the Half-Life experience. In fact, I, I, I have to admit, uh, I've never actually completed um, the original Half-Life because I uh, don't find it as engaging uh, as um, Half-Life 2 because it's missing all these things like the gravity gun and the physics puzzles that I really love. Mm. In fact, I'm enjoying Black Mesa more because it adds in all that stuff it feels like a prequel to half-life 2 more than it does a um a modification of half-life some point into soundtraps after you've done the bit that we've just talked about uh you fight uh, an antlion boss uh, antlion guard i think it's uh technically known as uh after which uh, a friendly vortigaun appears and uh, rips out its some kind of pheromone sack uh, which enable you to command a squad of, I think it's four antlions at a time, uh, for a, a large chunk of the next part of the game, which is where, again, you're continuing along the coast. This is a heavily fortified combine area uh, where, again, you could actually do it, especially on the lower difficulty settings, without any antlion chums, but, uh, but it makes it that much more fun. You squeeze your little pheromone pod and then chuck one at... Uh, at the installation that you want savaged and off go your friendly antlions leaping into the sky flapping their sort of vestigial wings and uh, tearing combine apart that was um a really interesting decision to have an enemy that had been really pestering you all the way through this long section of the game and have them suddenly be your closest allies and I, you know, I couldn't help but, you know, get a little attached to the little guys. I mean, they've been horrible (laughs) to me this whole time. But, you know, when they successfully just completely destroy, you know, uh, uh, combine um, 
uh, bunker and stuff like that. I couldn't help but be proud that my little guys were <laughs> going out there doing a good job. Um, I used them. Um, I certainly wouldn't recall it as a weapon I was particularly fond of during the game. Um, and uh, you make your way to Nova Prospect where Eli is being held. Uh, so this is a, a former Eastern European prison. Again, as you can imagine, quite uh, quite a stark and harsh environment, made harsher by the fact that it's now in some kind of ruin. Its uh, various elements of it have been sort of overlaid with the combine technology, which is this sort of... Uh, I don't know, how would you describe it? It's this sort of shiny blue-black metal that they sort of clamp over things to make it uh, work for them. It's incredibly visually appealing um, yeah. and iconic to the to the to the series um and it's something mm. we hadn't really seen in any other games until dishonored um yeah that's what i was so, gonna say so and obviously it wouldn't surprise anyone to to learn that the lead artist was exactly the same person so it's mm. well most importantly it looked alien that's the thing that i that really struck me it completely contrasted with the rest of the architecture in a way that you could tell that these creatures were from another world. That's exactly mm. it. Um, yeah. Because it, it, the thing with um, uh, Gears of War is that I feel like when I'm fighting the locust, mm -hmm. when you're going down into their caverns, it for me it feels like the art style in that those games are, are rather consistent. So everything kind of blends together. Nothing yeah. really stands out. And so I just kind of feel like the locust have always been there and these people have always been fighting the locust. And it, this isn't anything new. Uh, the fight through the prison, um, quite a lot of uh, puzzling and some more increasingly brutal combat, uh, utilising uh, turrets, which you can carry around with you or use your gravity gun, whatever, um, set up tactically. I find these. I found this section, again, when you first play it, it feels like you don't know how long it's going to last. It feels like it's never going to end. You don't really know what you've got to do, set it up. Now on repeated playthroughs, I know exactly where to put my turrets and how to deal with them, but it's still fun. It's still fun to to, to, to actually do that, thinking of that scene in the director's cut of Aliens where they you know, they put the uh, the automatic uh, turrets in the corridor to, to take down the aliens. It's got very much that feel to it. Um, the plot weaves in and out with uh, <clears throat> you and Alex and, and uh, Mossman. Uh, you kind of end up from Nova Prospect. You meet up with Alex. They um, they uh, find Eli first, but then they have because he's in one of those containment things. They mm. have to send him off somewhere. But then they see uh, surveillance footage of Mossman, and she's clearly uh, talking with Breen. Breen, that's right. And mm. that's when you realise that she's been in communication with the enemy. Uh, it is revealed in chapter. Nine uh, A after Nova Prospect that uh, they can't quite uh, Alex and uh, Dr Freeman can't quite get hold of Eli sadly though they try and it's also revealed that Judith Boo Judas Mossman is in cahoots with Dr Breen who's in cahoots with the Combine Alex and Gordon are pretty much forced to uh, use a teleport to try to get back to Kleiner's lab, which they do, but it turns out it took them a week. It's a very slow teleport, <laughs> which is... <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd, I'd take it. It's probably still better than being stuck on a plane for 20 hours on a 
worldwide flight. Depends how long your holiday is. Uh, so there is um, the resistance are, are mobilizing um, and uh, starting a, a genuine uprising against the combine. Uh, this leads to a a level where um, almost like a it almost dabbles with squad based mechanics, but in yeah. a in a very sort of uh, a limited capacity, let's say. Okay, shock horror, everyone! I'm going to complain about something in Half Life Two. <laughs> um, I really don't like the squad stuff in Half Life no. Two, um, mainly because those guys are idiots. Mm. Um, they constantly getting in my way when I'm trying to get through a door. Oh God, yeah. Some some stairs. Um, it was all right when Alex Vance was following me because there's just one of her and she was, you know, easy to deal with. But when you got four of these guys and she can't die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're just tailing behind you and they're just kind of useless. They they occasionally give you a health pack, but yeah. Apart from that, they're kind of. I think it's a case that one of the major impacts on the game has always been the AI. Um. You know, it was revealed at the time, but when you go back to it, you can see even from Half-Life 1 and parts of Half-Life 2 that the AI struggles. And that's the exact reason that I struggle with the Antlions, because, you know, once again, it's the AI. And this section in particular was pretty horrific for that. It's They they iron that stuff out with the later episodes, because you spend a lot of time with Alex. And especially in episode 2, it feels like Alex is a very effective partner. But in this game, it does, yeah, I would agree. The ally AI is a bit ropey. You can point to a place with your crosshairs and tell them to go there, which does get them out of the way. But yeah, it's not ideal. They they do all seem a bit dumb. They tell you to reload your gun frequently, even though you've managed to get to this point in the game without having people to tell you to reload your gun. It all feels a bit unnecessary. Freeman is clearly, you know, work works best uh, either alone or with one of his friends, uh, not with these sort of random people. And... I'm I'm surprised really they don't do more given you know that there are these mo- famous moments in the game earlier on where you see the the oppressed humans in in their uh in their slummy buildings um unable to cope with the what's happened to the world and the fact that they're living this terrible uh enslaved austere existence um but then you know I I realize this is supposed to be more of a a motivational section but but these people they're, they're, there's no attempt to sort of s- sell these uh, people who are working with you as anything other than sort of fairly two-dimensional soldier compatriots they don't there's no none of them have any sort of story none of them are sort of when they do die there's no sort of sense of tragedy to it really the guys who follow you definitely there's there's nothing there the the best moments during this section of the game is just walking through the buildings and seeing the people who are comforting each other on like a couch. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and I kind of wish, you know, I had interacted with those characters a bit more. Maybe they, if this game was made now, they would have done it that way where you'd meet these people who are mourning and they're like, oh, hi, hi Freeman. Oh, let's join you. And you, you know, get those guys to join you. But mm. it does feel very gamey the way these characters just suddenly pop up and go, hi, I'm going to follow you now. Even if there have been, there's the there's the character in the um, in the Highway 17, Colonel Cubbage, who's a sort yeah. of um, slightly slightly comedy character, a uh, sort of British uh, sergeant type, um, who teaches you how to fire a rocket launcher and then lets you get on with it. But even somebody like that to sort of bond you to to the goings on at this stage. I mean, you you do end up teaming up with Barney, which helps, but. Uh, 
there are quite long sections where you aren't. Uh, however, it should be said that for for those issues with this section, and also I find the the hopper mines quite irritating. Never my favourite element of this yeah. section. They're not that fun to use um, or avoid. I think I think there was a good idea in there, but one that didn't perhaps come to fruition. Yeah, but they're just slightly more annoying explosive barrels. Yeah, um, and you just end up plucking them from the ground, which takes slightly too long, and then firing them, and it's quite hard to judge where they're going to land and so on. What is good about this section is the fact that you it feels like a war at this point, and you get to fight the Striders, which are, you know, a tripod enemy is something we've seen plenty of times, going back to H.G. Wells, and uh, also in that series tripods and various <laughs> other things um but these are these are the the coolest ones they are very like that but it's the way they walk they 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 walk in a, in a way which i imagine even though they've only got three legs would make uh, uh, an arachnophobe quite creeped out um the particularly and... eerie um it's it does the unusual thing of actually you know i criticized it earlier on but this is one of the enemies that absolutely nails the animation and it's eerie to the point that when they're around and when you sort of see them it's almost like the the, the hair stands up on your neck and your arms and it's oh yeah it's just very very clever i love taking them down they're very intimidating um mainly because of how destructive they are when that you know the the sound that builds up before they do their you know their most powerful attack which will take out sections of buildings and stuff like that that's scary mm. you just want to run into cover um you know playing it again i've played this game so many times that these guys don't give me much trouble anymore you know four missile uh you know four missiles and then they're down um but they they don't lose any of their um you know, their presence, they're very intimidating enemies. And, you know, again, it's the sound design. The you know, the they almost make like cow noises. I wonder if the people making Metal Gear Solid Four mm. when they had the uh, geckos on the drawing board yeah. took some influence from the, the striders because some of the sound designs do seem very similar. Mm. Uh, yeah, other sounds that I did, forgot to mention when we were talking about Ravenholm. There's the uh, the absolutely horrific screaming of the uh, the zombies that you can torch. Uh, that where suddenly you're aware that these were once humans as they <laughs> that that's really that is still really harsh. Um, and also there's the the howling noise that the I don't know what they're called the fast zombie types yeah, that yeah. Uh, come after you over the rooftops. <laughs> that is such an amazing sound and still utterly terrifying. Uh, you pretty much during this um, this stage, it's all, it's mainly about getting uh, up to uh, the roof of a building to shut down a suppression field, isn't it? Which is stopping um, people procreating. There's sort of more about that in in episode one. The fact that uh, Doctor Kleiner wants you to get busy again, start repopulating the Earth with with good old fashioned star humans. Um, the opportunity then comes around. Uh, the, I mean, the 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 tower we're talking about the the, the this dark blue black alien metal that that combine stuff is made of. The, the greatest example of this is the enormous monolithic tower that exists in the centre of City Seventeen that is actually sort of alive, and it's sort of it's kind of its feet are kind of expanding to absorb um, more and more of the city as it sits there. That's really weird 
when you first see it um, in the early sections of the game and you zoom on it, uh, zoom into it, uh, you can see different like plates of it shifting and moving mm. as it, you know, um, or because at that point in the game, it's releasing tons and tons and tons of these little uh, cameras that are flying about. Mm. Um, it, 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 you just get the sense that this is like a almost like a living creature like the rest of the combine force mm. uh, and then almost due to its its nature where it's almost cancer like eating the the city below it that this actually allows you to slip inside and uh, start making your ascent um fairly soon after a, a, a little bit of hairy but i i'd say fairly reasonable uh, in terms of what it asks of the player platforming, uh, you end up on a uh, in one of these same pods that Eli's in, and you get given a tour of of the inside of the citadel. And this is where you see the the combine machine in action, and um, that's uh, I think that's outstanding that section. And the sound again, the sound inside the citadel is just mind-blowingly good. These sort of hollow metallic clanking sounds, but and if I describe it like that, it sounds like it's probably a real cliche, but the reality is it doesn't. There's a, there's almost a sort of musicality to it, but really unsettling. I know some people who really don't like that section um, because, you know, control is completely taken away from you apart from your ability it is, to yeah. look around. Yeah. But you know what? I'm too busy I looking. Just... Yeah, you know, I I really enjoyed soaking in all the little stuff that was going on in it's the It's terrifying. There's so yeah. many dropships, so many troop ships, so many stalkers, so many striders. It's like, oh my god, this is what I've been fighting as one man, you know, with the yeah. old bit of help from a bunch of idiots. And you do see a unit that's never used in the and still yeah. hasn't been used in the game. Mm. Um, that weird, like, crab-like tank. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, uh, you know, in Half-Life 3, that thing will show up, if that ever gets released. We'll talk about um, that in the next Half-Life show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, reading about the design of, of the, the inside of the Citadel in, in the, the book, the Bible, Raising the Bar, uh, they talk about how, uh, and again, this is just testament I, I don't know of any other company that could design a level this well it's designed to be completely asymmetrical and this is entirely deliberate to make the player feel off kilter generally uh, we as humans design things to be symmetrical so you go into this alien place and you'll know well you, you may not even notice but on a subliminal level every corridor you're going through everything's lopsided like nothing kind of makes logical sense in the same way but it still does have some sort of consistency to it and also even though it feels the whole time you're inside the citadel with control of freeman it feels like you should be lost or you ought to be lost or you're about to be lost but actually you're being guided by valve's expert invisible hand always to the right place it's impossible to get lost in fact but the point is it doesn't feel like it is I like the aesthetic of the of the building, the the you know the nature of it being uncomfortable to walk through the you know the asymmetric design, um, and then you get to the point where your weapons are removed and all you're left with is my favourite, the gravity gun, and I really enjoyed the experience of the you know getting there and the progression until you're left with this weapon. Um, and it just became almost 
a little too, in my opinion, formulaic, um, dull, uh, repetitive. And the only thing I was almost left liking were were secondary things the you know the the environmental design that you know the the color palettes the the audio which you know as you, as you've said is is particularly excellent in this section the almost rhythmic sounds inside the building um but the progression was just very dull i i, I think you've got the idea that i really wasn't too keen on the gravity gun um and when it came to this point, it was I'd already felt like they'd shown the hand and shown me everything that could be done with this a long time before this came. And I actually remember almost exhaling and almost, oh, here we go again, you know. And it was just a bit disappointing. It, it fell a little flat. The The idea is that uh, the, 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 the building, as it were, the security detects all your weapons and takes them all away, doesn't. Uh, understand that the zero point manipulator, whatever it's called officially, is a weapon and so leaves it there, but actually the process of scanning it somehow makes it more powerful. So I think the idea was that Valve would give you one last kind of rush um, by chucking a whole ton of uh, Combine Elite at you while giving you the ability, which you didn't have with Gravity Gun up to this point, to actually suck people towards you and then fire them off. And that will kill them. And it will either kill them because they'll slam into a wall or they'll fall a long way or you can actually blast them into fields which disintegrate uh, living matter. Which was particularly um, cool at the time. Yeah, and I I actually would agree that this isn't my favourite section of the game. I think it was supposed to be like that real, you know, the sort of cathartic bit before you know the end of the plot is revealed um there are some other elements to this section some some little puzzly bits of of manipulating these uh sort of energy balls around to make platforms move up and down the the section where you actually have to climb a central column to get to breen is infinitely better done than that teleporting into numbered teleports as you did in half-life one because there's a logic to your progression it's not trial and error but i would actually agree that i think the game chucks too many combine elites at you um you have to do the same process of right click left click right click left click over and over again whereas actually it was more fun having to juggle your weapons and you know pin pin someone to the wall with an arrow and then double blast shotgun someone to the face is actually more rewarding and satisfying than what was the only option that's left to you at this stage? I don't think it's unsuccessful. I just think it's a trick that only works once. Um, the first time you play it, and for me at least, when I played this for the first time and this section comes up, I was like, yeah, this is amazing. Ah, oh, all these enemies that I struggled with before, I'm just throwing them around like ragdolls. I think it's playing it again and again and again where you realise, actually, I was having a bit more fun with my shotgun, mm. my crossbow and stuff like that. I don't think it's a bad section of the game. I just think it's comparatively... Um, less interesting than the traditional combat. Yeah, and this is the one section that I possibly would agree is ever so slightly too long and um, although, again, having played it through multiple times it really doesn't take very long. Um, the game keeps giving you a full top-up and double top-up of your shield as well so it's 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 fairly hard to dial. There is that one corridor where there's a 
uh, a strider at the end and a whole ton of troops in front where it where it can it can be a little testy but basically once you're past that it's uh it's end of the story time really um well one of the things i did really really like about that section are uh dr breen trying to communicate with uh freeman via the um intercom and via the video screen which you can rip off the wall yeah, <laughs> yeah. Again, just because the writing was so good, it was just really interesting listening to all the stuff he was tr- saying and desperately trying to convince you to come to come over to their side. Yeah, it has the whole uh, yes, join the dark side. Although Breen really doesn't see his relationship with the combine as the dark side, I think he's very much of the opinion that although he's you know looking after his own ass first and foremost, he believes that maybe. Maybe the uh, you know it would benefit in the, the the grand scheme of things the long 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 game for the for the human race would actually be you know survival would be in chance of survival would be improved by uh, getting into bed with the combine or bowing to their wishes anyway. However, uh, Mossman eventually sees sense and uh, she is redeemed by uh, freeing uh, Freeman and Alex and Eli. Now, uh, I can't actually. Now, a lot of people, the, the, this final boss section, if you will, is is often um, criticised. I've never quite understood exactly what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. I must be honest. I I get what you mean. I, I certainly the first time I didn't really get what I was doing. I I kind of understand what I'm doing now. I'm using the energy balls to do destroy the plates around the yeah sphere. that that but i get what what's what's this portal that that breen is actually trying to open oh he's just trying to escape isn't he um the reason why you want to take him out is because once that thing goes off the room gets filled with deadly chemicals and oh that's right chemicals. yeah yeah you're gonna and get vaporized it, by yeah, chemicals yeah. as yet unnamed by humankind or whatever yeah i think people um because as soon as as soon as gordon shuts it down with the final shot uh the g-man reappears and freezes time and puts uh puts gordon into stasis and i think for a lot of people it's uh it didn't feel like a, a satisfying enough conclusion or a genuine end and i suppose the existence of episodes one and two with gordon being rapidly taken back out of stasis uh suggests that maybe it wasn't um as much as i love this game and i do think overall it's a bit of a masterpiece um it's difficult i like the fact that it feels so different because everything just stops and it's like it's so much better than a massive explosion that we've seen a billion times before but in another way it it is un, it doesn't it doesn't conclude anything yeah it's anticlimactic and i feel like as the time has gone by um my feelings towards the uh, towards the ending have become more positive just because of episode one and episode two mm. existing. It does feel like that that isn't the end. This story continues, mm. but I, I that story perfectly... doesn't end though. This one continues, yeah. but then the, the episode story never ends. Yeah, apparently. Yeah. Um, well, I, I get if somebody from two thousand four was disappointed by that ending, I would totally understand. I actually quite liked it. I think I like mm-hmm. the fact that it almost threw the curveball at the end. You're like, oh, oh, I wasn't kind of expecting that. So by mm. by that point, you know, I, I felt like everything was going the way I saw it. So for it to sort of do something like that at the end, I thought that was quite refreshing. And I actually enjoyed that. 
Yeah, I got that. That's kind of what I was getting at. Just the idea that it was something a little different. Yeah. They didn't, you know, it, there was no kind of uh, modern Doctor Who style. Uh, you know, all right, I'm just gonna uh, press this button, and then suddenly this portal will, in fact, uh, cleanse the entire of City Seventeen of Combine, and that's it. Game over. You win. Woohoo! Uh, that would have really sucked. So it's better than that. And you know, the fact that it leaves um, everybody's fate still completely up in the air uh, is. Yeah, it's more interesting in a way than just the the usual sort of whitewash or uh, yeah even just yeah the idea of right well city 17 solved so next time we see gordon in half-life 3 he'll be cleansing all the other cities or telling everyone how to do it or something yeah so i don't know um not i don't have massively strong feelings one way or the other about it uh, and as i say at least it's it's sort of memorable and the, and again just a, a wonderful touch of animation as the g-man actually plucks a tiny bit of glass from out of the air near alex and just wipes his fingers of it just stuff like that that again you just think that if a big if this was a big studio game you know that was published by somebody else and made by somebody else there's pressure or an insistence to have a certain kind of ending you know a death star blowing up kind of ending and and this hasn't got that so at least again it has has its own personality now we talked somewhat uh, in the half-life one issue about mods and obviously a lot of those mods from half-life one have gone on to become their own entities very much so in their own right now uh, probably the most famous mod for half-life two is gary's mod now i i don't know much about the mod scene at all uh, not specifically about half-life two or anything else gary's mod i've heard of um it was the kind was it the the mod that after valve released the uh, sdk gary's mod allows any old schmo to basically fuck around with the entire yeah, it's a thing. it's a pure playground of elements and it's almost like a mod for mods in in its own sort of enclosed environment so just you know you get together right. with your friends and just do something daft and go oh look that's the end result of you know what happens if i stick two million bricks on a seesaw and then you know computer crashes exactly yeah, yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was really embraced by the machinima community because you can mm. create all sorts of different narratives by just messing about with the tools that were available in Half-Life 2. And now with the modern version of Gary's Mod, all sorts of other Valve games. But yeah, no, it is kind of just a playground. A fun playground, but it's not it's, anything special. It's more about what it uh, affords the video gaming community as a whole and, and, and the machinima community than it is relevant to Half-Life 2 in a way but but I guess it's the the fact that Valve positively encouraged these things to exist that is, again is what separates them from a lot of developers there's another one called Source Forts I don't know the differences if anything um, other mods I've just I all I know are the names Rock 24 Half-Life 2 Substance uh, Smod or S-Mod uh, Dystopia Zombie Master Iron Grip the Oppression and uh, one that, Josh, you've told me is kind of significant called um, Minerva. Yeah, um, I've I've only played Gary's Mod and this one. Uh, this one is set in the world of Half-Life 2. It's a, 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 like a small story within the universe. Um, it's called Minerva because the character you play as gets uh, radio messages from a character called Minerva. Um, and it was just a really well-designed... Uh, 
you know game it, it felt it felt like it was at a professional standard there's a section of the game where you go into a factory where um the uh, mortars for all the head crabs are constructed oh, nice. and that was really fascinating um it because the way it was designed it was kind of episodic and and the guy who was making them uh sorry i'm just gonna find the name of the guy uh adam foster who did, uh, made this model right. he was uh releasing sections of it uh, as he went along uh he hasn't finished the last section out of time because he got employed by valve yeah um, right. <laughs> based on the strength of this game um he was uh, specifically employed to work with the half-life 2 episode 3 development team i have no idea what he's doing now but um yeah i, I just think it's really interesting that by playing about with somebody else's game and constructing his own story, he managed to get himself a dream job. Uh, well, outside of the standard stuff like Counter-Strike, I did use one mod, which was um, the, just at the time it was just dubbed the cinematic mod, um, which was between two and four gig, because um, certain files were optional, um, which increased textural qualities, changed some elements of the sound, which... I know it's going to sound quite... Sacrilegious, shocking. yeah. Yep, and it would... Certain elements, music would come in and play, which worked really, really well. Hmm. Um, and for the time, it looked absolutely stunning. It really did improve the, the you know the fidelity and the textures. Um, I'm not sure if it's still in development, and this was many years ago that I was trying this, probably 2006. I would, I would hazard a guess was the last time I used that mod, but it was very, very good. Hmm. Now for some listener correspondence from the forum. We'll start with Guy JD. He says, Half-Life 2 was one of the first games that gave me nightmares. Not a bad thing. I do love a good nightmare. Just hearing the sound of the combined voice sends chills up my spine to this day. Playing the game with the lights off and surround sound on is one of the most frightening things you can do without leaving the comfort of your home. The varied locations you travel through as you progress through the game are amazingly eerie, and even on what must be easily my tenth playthrough still has moments that have made me jump. If you if you haven't played this game, you need to at least give it a go. Just remember one thing. We don't go to Ravenholm. Delby 2K. Personally, I have only ever thought Half-Life 2 was okay. A good fun title that had as many flaws as successes, but one that I never really understood the overwhelming froth for. Primarily, it is pacing, something that feels all over the place with long stretches that felt more like padding than something that benefited the gameplay. The coast section is one standout of this. But even near the end, when you're making your way up to the final confrontation, the section felt a little too forced, too long-winded. For this game, Valve really needed the equivalent of a ruthless editor chopping out the parts that did not benefit the gameplay being presented to the player. The company do not need any help in the areas of characterization. Creating NPCs throughout that are actually interesting is slightly reliant on floating camera with any leg without any legs. This was all really good, really well done, and the most forward-thinking I can remember seeing at the time. Shame it's all wrapped up in a story that delights in being obscure, resulting in an adventure coordinated by others and followed without question or query by the player. Yes, the developers may tell much through the environment, but why should I have to look there to make sense of the main arc? Portal did the same thing to much, much better effect. The actual mechanics are fine feels solid to play, but it is not the best shooting and the platforming benefited from everyone going, ooh, physics. 
So yeah, it felt fun, and I would never say I did not enjoy it by any stretch of the imagination, but I've never felt that it was the gem it has been put up to be. Bullet Zen says, I love the pacing and variety of Half-Life 2. The introduction to the player of this dystopian society via your arrival to City 17, the escape through the canals, the horror of Ravenhome, and its brilliant experimentation with traps, saw blades, and the gravity gun. The loneliness of Highway 17, the first encounter with the antlions and using the thumpers, the brutality of Nova Prospect, leading the rebellion in City 17 and taking on the striders, the overpowered gravity gun and ripping the combine to bits. So many standout moments. So much unforgettable sound. A game that has some utterly wonderful characters. Not just the main characters like Alex and Eli, but secondary characters like the tragically mad father Grigori, or even Dog. A truly wonderful game. Here, here, Mr. Bullets and I say. And finally, Plex Shaw. Plenty of people have already spoken about the game itself, which I adore to this day, so I'll opt for a slightly different comment. Half-Life 2 is basically the reason I now, sort of, work in IT. When I saw the E3 2003 demos, I decided that I was going to have to get a PC capable of playing it properly. At the time, I didn't have my own and was relying on my parents' crappy Win98 box for web browsing, etc. Obviously, the game was subject to a 14-month delay from the initially announced release date, so I used that time to research PCs, ranging from components to info about Windows XP. This turned into a much into a more general interest in computers and I soon found myself becoming the designated tech support for my family. The first PC I got was pre-built but two years after that I took the plunge and built one myself. Incidentally, this was mere days after performing best man duties at Tony and Liz's wedding. After that it became clear to my work colleagues at the time that a career in IT would be a better use of my abilities than human resources. It took me a long time and a few personal setbacks but I finally changed to a job with more of an IT slant last year and haven't looked back since. And all because I wanted to make sure Half-Life 2 didn't run like junk when I finally got my hands on it. Kana Rinse, three word reviews. Don't forget, each time uh, we are about to record a show, we put the shout out on Twitter. You can use the hashtag CRTWR and try to review the game we are about to cover, or games, in three words. Badur SNK has done that. For Half-Life 2, he says, now introducing physics. Sonic Mall. My favourite shooter. Baker's 12 says, Mrs. Black Mesa. Snaky David, almost a masterpiece. Count Stex, PC's finest hour. Michael Ledward, is that how I pronounce it? It is now. Okay. Michael Ledward, continued bar raising. I assume it's Ledward like Edward. I don't know. Yeah. Rock Stepper, engrossing, even today. Alex Dollar. Sauce Engine Sickness. Brad Galloway, famous uh, critic. Why is Gordon silent? That's a good question. Zephyr Light, uh, MIT Educated Crowbar. Pitwar, Bloody Motion Sickness. Brandon Restall says, Great Gravity Gun. And finally, Ryan Astley says, Setting Highest Standard. Before we do our own summaries, uh, that it is worth commenting on that uh, uh, quite a lot of people, I've heard this anecdotally and it came up again on these three word reviews, people really do struggle with motion sickness uh, with Half-Life 2 above and beyond lots of games. Um, I, I understand that because I've never suffered from this myself, pleasingly, it would I would find this hugely upsetting. Um, I understand you can 
do things about it if you are a first person. And I've, I have a friend who even suffers from motion sickness on third person games, so it can be that bad. Uh, you can do things about it. And there's a field of view uh, editor, isn't there, now in the options of Half-Life 2, which apparently yes. can make a difference. Yeah, it's the field of view that caused the issues in the first place. So being mm. able to change it, um, they, for some reason they decided to alter it, which is part of the reason why it has such a unique look when you play it. Um, and that sadly results in many people suffering sickness. Yeah, I don't know what, like, how you uh, how you test the, you know, how you know what the field of view that's good for you is or, or whatever. I think the idea is is it that you make it smaller or larger to combat motion sickness? Possibly. I think it's, you, I think it's smaller. You, you make it so mm. there's less focus on what you're looking at. There's less less in your peripheral vision sort of thing. I'm not sure anyway. Um, but also, I, I've heard other people who are so desperate not to miss out on certain games that they will take travel sickness pills and, and things like that yeah. to, to deal with it. But God, I'm so glad I don't get that. Uh, our summaries then. Let's start with Carl. I'm sure throughout a lot of this video game discussion on Half-Life 2, I've come across as being negative on elements of this game and Whilst there are some elements I'm not fond of, or some I think are perhaps so-so, um, there are many that I do enjoy. Um, there's no doubt how important this game has been for future games development and how of its time and perfect it was for so many things then. I do agree with what some people have written in with, with the discussions and three-word reviews, particularly Del B2K, I think very much matches up with what my thoughts on the game were. Um, I have issues with, you know, the the, the over-usage of the gravity gun or in certain elements I do feel are a bit long and overplayed and could have done with editing, particularly the last section. Uh, maybe the final third of the game, I feel, falls a bit flat, except for Nova Pro- Prospect, which I do enjoy. Um... But the first third of that game is some of the best gaming I have done ever. It's from the the moment you step off the train and explore City 17 for the first time, it is such a wondrous place um, that really did set a benchmark uh, for for environmental design and you know where things have gone. So for that alone, and thankfully it is at the start of the game, so if you've never tried it, get on it it's you know you're going to get it for essentially gaming pennies come christmas time and um, that is if someone doesn't gift you it because because it's a valve game if you if someone buys it in a pack they can just gift titles if they already own it uh it's certainly worth trying and i'd be surprised if it doesn't grab you because if you're a fan of first person games and you've not tried this then you probably love the start to this game because it is excellent for me, as I said, uh, you know, I did play Half-Life, uh, not quite at the time, a little later, but uh, I liked it very much. Um, but Half-Life 2 continues to eclipse it in every way for me. Um, but to talk about it on its own terms, um, I think it's probably the, the the long game that I've completed the most times. There are a lot of games that I've completed multiple times, but they tend to be shorter games. This is one that can last maybe 10 to 14 hours, something like that. And I play through it every couple of years uh, for the few flaws, the few problems that I have with it. Um, mostly, I guess, 
they're age related now um one thing we haven't mentioned at all the because the game apparently takes place in one continuous journey it is cut up as was the original by loading breaks which are disruptive um you know they're briefer now than they probably were because you know we've got more ram in our pcs and stuff but they they still frustrate uh, that enemy ai is still not amazing looks sillier as it gets older but for those few little problems i have with it this game has my my favorite examples of so many things in gaming that I can't do anything other than worship this game. It's I still find it the most immersive game. You know, I I, I still think it looks great, but it, you know the graphics obviously have aged a bit, even though they've been updated. But this is a game where, unlike almost any other, I completely forget that I'm alive while I'm playing it, like I'm a real person out in the real world. It's the game that I can be completely absorbed in, forget that I'm looking at a screen and control using a controller or a mouse and keyboard. I just feel in that world, and that's a combination of the atmosphere and the environments and the color palette and those sound effects and the the weapons that are so much fun to use and you know my favorite puzzles and some of my favorite voice acting and level design and set pieces um and the combination of all those things it it does come down to the fact that subjectively i i just find the the world in which this game is set to be just utterly intoxicating. Um, but the combination of all those things that I just mentioned done so well um, means that, yeah, this game to me is very nearly, very near uh, a masterpiece and certainly on the uh, metaphorical epic shelf or slightly above on that little mini shelf that's on that Carl's got his copy of Half-Life 1 on. I've got my copy of Half-Life 2 on and a couple of other things. Josh? This game is incredibly important to me. Um, it came at, it came to me at a very early time in my life when I was 14 and I wasn't as interested in games as I am now. And I feel like Half-Life 2 was one of those games that really encouraged me to get involved with the gaming community. And I wonder if I hadn't bumped into Half-Life 2, I wonder if I'd be sitting here talking to you all now on a po- on a gaming podcast talking to you all on twitter i really wonder whether i you know go off and you know be more interested in other things like film but half-life 2 to me represents so much of what i love about video games um and i feel like it still does them better than any game released now and i think there are lessons to be learned from it even now i I play first-person shooters like uh, Syndicate, we we were talking about last week, and other games like that, and I feel like they still don't quite... Well, quite is an understatement. They don't reach the height that Half-Life 2 um, came, you know, got to. I... Everyone has like a collection of games that they consider to be their gold standards. The the games that they use as measuring sticks to measure everything else by. And Half-Life 2 is one of those. It's possibly my favourite game of all time, uh, competing with a couple of others. I adore this game. No surprises there, but fair play and well said. Um, we'll, of course, we'll be back in a month's time with uh, episodes one and two, which will inevitably include some discussion of um, Half-Life 3, maybe Half-Life 2, episode 3. Who knows? 
what will come next, um, but uh, there will be. Uh, otherwise, uh, Cane and Rinse Volume 2, the shows that are scheduled include Cave Story next week, following that Binary Domain, then Pac-Man Championship Edition DX, and some Pac-Man chat generally. Uh, Akami, Stroke HD, uh, Shenmue's 1 and 2, and then in the new year, Apple Jacks 1 and 2, and Papo and Joe, with more to be announced, although I may have to schedule them myself, because Tony probably quite busy uh, for the next few months. Anyway, the month-by-month -month schedule can be found on the blog, which is acanarince.com. Of course, we have our quick rinse videos on the blog and the YouTube channel. Twitter is at canarince, facebook.com slash canarince2. You can email, email us if you want, canarince at gmail.com. And naturally, your support for the show via iTunes subscriptions, reviews and ratings is massively appreciated. Most of all, we'd like you to join the community and have your say about the show, podcast, gaming generally, gaming nights, etc. So on and so forth at canarince.com slash forum or go via the big button on the homepage. Until then... Next week, next issue, it just remains for me, Leon Cox, to thank Carl Moon and Joshua Garrity. And we'll see you around. <laughs>